Section 8 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns. The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns. The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. At the Sign of the World's End. The Militarist and the Marxian, by G.K. Chesterton. People seem to be very proud of discovering in practice what they have denied in theory. They call it progress. If somebody says that cats can be used as well as dogs for running down a fox, a man who knows better will need not a little patience, as he watches the packs of cats being carefully bred and kenneled in every county, or led, along with Huntsman and Pink, through any marketplace or country lane. He will not necessarily dislike cats or even think them useless, but he will be moved to a slight annoyance when he is told that a combination of cats must be good at catching a fox because the individual cat is very good at catching a mouse. But his impatience may possibly boil over when he is suddenly told, a long time afterwards, that the ruthless realism of the reformers has now exposed the utter uselessness of the cat as a foxhound, and possibly even ventured on the daring proposal to inaugurate a new era by using the foxhound as a foxhound. Now that sort of thing is perpetually happening. If I might be so egotistical, it is perpetually happening to me. I once expressed it in an article bearing the unpleasant title of I Told You So. That was about the feminist question, but I will not adduce that example here, lest some of the ladies should snatch at my flying figure of speech and cry aloud that I have called all women cats. I do not think women are like cats, though I do think the comparison is true as concerns that particular point about not hunting in packs. I do think the female is generally most powerful in some domestic, intimate, and individual sort of murder, resembling the murder of a mouse. And I do think the males are generally most powerful in some sociable, companionable, comrade-like sort of murder, like the murder of a fox. And I did find, I fancy, that the feminists themselves lived to discover the difference and the difficulty they had ignored, as when the suffragette discovered that her solitary and secret ballot paper was of very little use against the iron and brazen brotherhood of the masculine trades unions. But I am not now thinking of this example, nor indeed do I think it by any means the clearest or most convincing example. The comparative disappointment of suffragettes with the suffrage is merely a faint chill in the atmosphere, or change in the mood, compared with the violent, abrupt, and absolute reversal of ethics and politics, which I have lived to see in many progressive movements, and notably in the Bolshevistic type of socialism. At least as long ago as the beginning of the war, I, for one, began to reason with the type of socialist who insisted on being a pacifist. He took up a position sufficiently summed up in a formula I have just read, cited with approval in my favorite organ, the Bolshevist Liberator of New York. Quote, that war is an inevitable consequence of the capitalist regime, that no war, defensive or offensive, is justifiable, that the effective and real struggle against war ought to attack its actual cause, the capitalist regime. End quote. And I pointed out that the first and third statements are knocked quite senseless by the second statement. 
A revolution is itself a war. A revolution against real tyranny is morally the most defensive of all wars, and therefore the most defensible of all wars. But externally and in form, it is necessarily the most offensive of all wars, for it is the interruption of some sort of existing social order, because, in the legal sense, it is a breach of the peace. It must be legally offensive because it is a legal offense. Therefore, a revolution might be called morally a defensive war or legally an offensive war. But if all wars are unjustifiable, whether they are offensive or defensive, then obviously all revolutions are unjustifiable, whether they are offensive or defensive. I might have respected a man who says frankly that he did not object to fighting, but did object to fighting Germans. And there was many a socialist, and many a capitalist too for that matter, who really had that curious feeling. They sympathized with Prussia because it was a servile state, which they held in their hearts to be the next best thing to a socialist state. But what they said was, first that it would only be right to attack the capitalist state, and then that it could never be right to attack any of the existing capitalist states, and that because it could never be right to attack anybody. But the irony and inconsistency went further still. At the very moment when they were offering us an alternative fight as better than our own fight, they specialize in the vituperation, not of our own fight, but of the very nature of fighting. Their worst denunciations were directed against things that would be absolutely inevitable in anybody attacking anything, or indeed in anybody defending anything. They complained of the danger as such, of the sacrifice as such, of command, of a concerted plan, of prompt obedience, and prolonged endurance. They reviled every virtue that would be as vital to a revolutionary war as to any other war. I pointed all this out to them as did thousands of other moderately sane Democrats, when they could find nothing but an occasional conchie to admire in all that hell full of heroes. I pointed out that no revolution could remove the possibility of self-defense in some form, and that for the most reasonable of all possible reasons. The reason is that self-defense cannot depend on oneself. By definition, the occasion of self-defense can never be self-made. I urged that if they did found their communist state, they would probably have to defend it. If they founded a pacifist state, it could not be sure of remaining at peace. If they founded a state in which people wore wings like angels and lived at the top of trees like birds and hygienically ate nothing but the fruit of the tree that they might become as gods, knowing good and evil, they would still have to make some arrangements to prevent their feathers being plucked or their nests being rifled their groves cut down by an enemy, and their apples stolen by a thief. Even if they were angels, they would soon discover why the leader of all the angels is conceived as clad in armor with his foot upon a dragon. And even in their own paradise, they would find the meaning of the flaming sword. When one said all this self-evident sense to them, they did what such people always do. They repeated their formula, some such formula as I have quoted from them. Quote, that no war, defensive or offensive, is justifiable, end quote. Strangely enough, when one had heard this sentence some 200 times, one became a little tired of the subject, or rather of the people who could not be induced to stick to the subject. Then other things happened, and the tremendous tragedy developed in more and more dramatic ways in Europe generally, and Russia in particular. 
I open my Bolshevist magazine again after an interval, and I find a rather curious thing. I find Lenin and Trotsky being lauded to the skies for their realistic candor and their scientific boldness in facing the cold facts of life, and especially for the intellectual courage in investigating the psychology of war. It seems they have discovered that a new force called discipline is necessary in war, that military plans require the development of a secret and subconscious faculty called obedience, hitherto hidden from psychologists. And they are objects of peculiarly passionate praise because they have inflicted something called the death penalty on an enormous number of deserters and mutineers. Death is spoken of as an entirely new discovery, for they are the vanguard of the new world, and anything they do is new, so long as it is new to them. I need not say that while militarism is a mark of originality in them, it is still a mark of conventionality in other people. It never occurs to them to reconsider their original criticisms of patriotic militarism. Foch or French are still entirely wrong for doing what Lenin and Trotsky have since found to be entirely right. The conscientious objector must still be praised by socialists, as at the beginning of the war, even though he is shot by Bolshevists before the end of the war. This very magazine, The Liberator, which I am taking as a text for these studies in Bolshevism, often prints, side by side, a satire on France being military and a defense of Russia being militarist. But I draw attention to this inconsistency at this stage for a further reason, which I can only develop fully in a further article, and the first outline of which I will only indicate here. These Marxians have already discovered that a knowledge of Marx is by no means identical with a knowledge of man. They started out with the arbitrary dogmas that democratic states need no armies, or that democratic armies need no discipline. It was admittedly a mistake, and they themselves now largely admit that it was false psychology. They have made huge concessions to the need or notion of military discipline. They have also, in practice, made concessions to the need or notion of private property. Might it not dawn on them that their communist theory is as wrong as their pacifist theory, and that they must think again about the nature of property as well as about the nature of arms? End of section 8.